I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day, everyone, and welcome to Hard Yards in Leadership. Today, I'm thrilled to have a guest on, Mandy Davis, who's got a very different story. She's a founder, but not a tech founder. And in fact, her business is in apparel and quite specifically sports, even more specifically, mountain bike apparel. Mandy saw an opportunity to go after a gap in the market. She threw caution to the wind, went after it, learning as she went, doing a lot of things she didn't know how to do. And 11 years later, she's selling in multiple countries and runs a vibrant and successful business. She's got a fantastic business and a fantastic story. Her background is essentially in two main chapters. She started her employment career in the corporate sector with Carlson Wagon Let Travel. She was based over in Paris. She was there from 2005 to 2012, and she rose to a very senior level of becoming a global program director. Like so many founders, she tagged out of all of that, came back to Sydney, founded her own business, Darko, and that was 11 years ago. And through those 11 years, she's been operating as founder and managing director. In this episode, I'll be asking Mandy about how school actually prepared her for leadership. And we often hear from leaders about how they recognize that that even pre-employment was where they started to learn many of the elements of leadership. I'll be diving into into the challenge that she encountered when she was given a leadership position over an experienced person who was already in the team, and we know how awkward that can be. And in particular, learning from Mandy about some of the challenges she faced at Darko during the COVID era, where she started off actually with this roller coaster of a surge, a massive surge in demand, followed by a relatively predictable, perhaps, drop or slump in, in, in demand which creates its own basket of different problems. So we look forward to hearing those stories and more from Mandy. Welcome, Mandy. Hey there, Mandy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Wayne. How are you? Doing good. How are you? Yeah, really great. Thank you. So good to have you on. And I've been looking forward to having this chat and and hearing from you some of the different leadership experiences you've had. But let's start off and if I can kind of ask you to think back to in your career, the first time you realized you kind of had leadership responsibility, can you think of when that was? Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know how far back we want to go. I guess even thinking back to school, like I was one of the prefects or, you know, sports captain um, in, you know, a schooling environment. So Mm -hmm. I guess from a leadership perspective, it's probably my first taste at real leadership, I would say. And then from a corporate perspective, one of my first jobs, I moved to Europe when I was 21, basically went on a trip for six months and didn't come back for 10 years. So I ended up working in Paris for a lot of that time and living in Paris. And one of my first jobs there was doing some sales and marketing, we were writing tenders to win global business for a big international company. And I was sort of put into the role of managing some staff, six people um, of the time there. So I think that was probably my first real leadership experience, I would say. And uh, unless I've, I've misunderstood that, it probably had the added complication that, that you were doing that in French. Well, we were actually, because we were writing these global tenders, our work, day-to-day work was in English and all of the people in that team were expats. So we were basically all native English speakers that were living in Paris. So 
we actually had a great, really fun time. It was it was really a, a very cool team of people that were like far from home and enjoying being in, in a foreign foreign city. So it was great. But I guess on the HR management side, yes, that was in French and, you know, there was all, all the other people within the organisation. There was more than 8,000 staff that worked at the company. So, you know, we were interacting with everyone in French, but our specific team was English English speaking. And what company was that? It's called Carson Wagonly Travel. So it's a big global travel agency, second in the world to Amex, yeah. Yeah, it's a massive organisation. I know them well. And I'm fascinated, Mandy, kind of like, because you, you mentioned about first leadership experiences pre-corporate days. And it's interesting, a number of a number of leaders that we speak to on the show actually reference back to first leadership experiences prior to corporate and I wonder to what extent did you feel that those opportunities of being either prefect or in a, in a sports captain space, how much did, did they influence kind of how you came to see yourself as a leader when you actually had that responsibility in the corporate world? I would say it just meant that I was maybe more at home with that or I, I guess like growing up and being in a school environment where you have responsibilities and yeah, you have certain certain roles already. I think it maybe just makes you believe you can do it. I used to do a lot of debating at school and public speaking and, you know, talking in front of the assembly and things like that. So I guess it's a, definitely a confidence-building tool that enables you just to, to know what to do more and maybe be more articulate and be able to work with a team because really managing a team is all about communication and if you can communicate and bring people together then I think those skills that you know you could have learned at a school or a club or whatever it is can definitely transcribe over to the corporate world. Yeah it's a common theme actually that we we hear this often and I think people have had that opportunity in their kind of school and and pre-corporate days to take some leadership responsibility and also as you said doing things like public speaking and debating and those sorts of things that give you confidence and the ability to communicate in a one-to-many space with a degree of confidence. They're fantastic baseline skills, aren't they, that, that you end up kind of really leaning on in, in, in your corporate roles, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's go back to that first leadership situation. Do you remember kind of how you felt when you realised, okay, I've got to step up to the plate here, I'm in a leadership role? What sort of things were going through your mind at the time? I would say quite excited. It was a really challenging role in that we had extremely tight deadlines. So we used to work with, you know, the big sales directors who would fly in from wherever, come to Paris, which was sort of the HQ, work with us, you know, writing these big tenders. So it was, and, you know, so we, I have occasions like where we, we actually stayed working all night. So I was there with one of the salesperson and one of our other team members and we're, you know, typing, writing this tender that had to go in the next day and we were there till the sun came up the next morning type of thing. And I have a couple of experiences like that. So it was a very sort of high pressure in the, that we were winning big customers, like 200 to $400 million, you know, customers per year in the travel space. Yeah, so I think it was stressful, but for me that was great. It was like I I enjoy that challenge and I really enjoyed the fast-paced nature and I was young and really there, like I didn't mind staying late. I didn't have any other obligations to go home early and look after a family or kids or anything like that. So I think it it was a really good time in my career and a good opportunity to be there and do that. 
Nice. And so, you know, obviously our podcast is called Hard Yards in Leadership, so it's time we started to explore some of those. So do you remember the first time when you were in a leadership role where something kind of came at you that kind of that you found really hard to deal with or kind of rocked your boat a bit? Yeah, I'm sure there's so many of those. I think one, like one thing in particular when I took over the role of leadership in that first job, there was kind of someone else that was more senior than myself in the team and they gave me the position of leader over that person. And, yeah, I guess navigating that was probably one of the first things. I then became that person's manager and had to work through that with them. And I think it was fine. I think they understood and we could, you know, rationalise sort of why I would be maybe a better leader of the team. Like they were very good at their job but maybe not great at leading people. So just then having to work with and manage that person was probably one of the biggest challenges I think at the beginning but we really just got through that by communicating and yeah just working together as much as possible through that process. And was that other person resistant at first like how how was it before it kind of got good? Yeah definitely a bit resistant and like resentful maybe you know not not specifically understanding why that I was chosen for that and you know had been there yeah, for longer and really knew what they were doing as well. So, yeah, there was definitely a bit of tension at the beginning. And when you look back now at sort of how you dealt with that situation, is there anything that you would do differently now if you kind of you know, came across a, a similar situation? Yeah, I think, the, I think the main thing is really just being open and communicating and supporting that person and, you know, them knowing that they are genuinely they were a valuable member of the team and that they were contributing and, you know, I needed that person to be there. They had good experience. So I guess just, you know, being as open as possible and letting letting people know their strengths and their values and I think that, that's really the key to making something like that work. Yeah, nice example. And um, there's lots of people who listen to the the show who are in the earlier phases of their leadership career and I think it's something that often happens for folks you know, particularly in a first leadership role where it's an internal promotion, uh, same type of thing as what you've described. And what they finish up is in exactly the same as you've described, which is where, you know, someone else who may have been seen as the favourite for whatever reason, been there longer, older, whatever else, and then they don't end up, end up getting the job. And sometimes that can be a very difficult situation. But I think, as you say, just really making sure that you kind of have open communication and be as open and vulnerable with, with that person as you can be. Yeah. Um, it minimises the likelihood that they kind of end up kind of holding some deep grudge. Yeah, I think that. And I just thinking about it also giving them very specific jobs almost, like, you know, being, yeah, giving them some some maybe slightly elevated roles that within the, the rest of the team had. I think that was also something thinking back that we tried to do as well and give her some special projects within the team to work on as well. So staying in that same era if we can, because I'm sure there were it was a, a massive sort of like growth curve that you were on in that part of your, your career, maybe just move, you know, a year or two or whatever it might be further along other things that, that may have kind of come along that you were like, oh, my gosh, I've, like how do I deal with this one? Yeah. From a team perspective there, I think the team were all pretty great. I had a really, a really cool boss and he was German and he had this catchphrase which I use still to this day which says you know do good things and talk about it 
So I think like that's one of the things that I learned the most from from that role is that whatever you're doing within the team or you know within within your role, but you know make sure that you're you're then explaining that to other people or you've got some you've got something to show for what you're doing. So I think that was one of the key things that we did you know within the team as that team grew is really yeah being able to talk about your wins and your successes and all of that sort of thing. And then I guess, yeah, within the team, I mean, you always have some HR issues or, you know, someone that, I don't know, we, we had some, I don't know how much I can say, we had a cool, you know, story of someone having a relationship with someone else in the office, which, you know, that got a little bit tense, I guess. There were, yeah, so sort of navigating, even though, you know, like a personal relationship. To another colleague um, who was sort of, yeah, so that was something that I guess was a challenge that we had to work through because the company didn't want to close relationships and different things like that. But, yeah, I mean, it was in France and even some basic things are really interesting in, in different cultures. But in France, for example, you can't eat your lunch at your desk. You've got to go outside and, you, yeah, that sort of thing. So there's just different sort of rules in different places, I guess, of, of how, how you do things. So, so let's, let's dive into, the, into a couple of those if you're okay with that. And the personal relationship situation is, you know, we don't need names or anything, of course, but so many folks listening to the show, whether they're founders or, or newer leaders, whatever, this is something that comes along. And often it's like, well, what do I do now? And you know, the, the, there's, the rule book not, isn't necessarily the most useful thing at, at that moment because you're dealing with complex emotive issues that people will be very sensitive to kind of like how you react and then there's the whole thing of like other people in the, in the work environment and, you know, do they know, do they not know and what are they going to think of what, what you do if you do something and what are they going to think if you don't do anything. So, how did you navigate that one, Mandy? Yeah, it's it's a hard one. I think again, really like talking talking to the person, you know, working through that. In the end, one of them left the company to pursue other things, which I think was probably the best, a good outcome in that specific situation. And that, yeah, I guess really really just communication and trying to trying to work through through that. And who was guiding you in? sort of making the decisions as to when you communicate and what sorts of things to talk about and what you can and can't do? In this case, yeah, I guess my boss really was guiding guiding those discussions and, and giving giving suggestions or feedback for how to address the situation. So you, you had a boss that you could, um, was this the German guy that you were referencing before? Yeah, he, he's really he was really great. So he, he taught me a lot actually. He was a... Yeah, he was a really great leader. So it was kind of good to have someone like that early on that that I could look up to. I think one of the greatest gifts you can have in the early days of of your leadership journey is is having some great role models and people that you can really trust and look up to and kind of say, you know, I'm going to try and be the sort of leader that you are. Not everyone gets given that that gift, but it's a wonderful thing if you do get one along the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, Mandy. We we're talking about your your days in 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 corporate and kind of and the Paris piece and and whatever else, but at some stage you decided corporate wasn't wasn't really for you anymore, right? And took quite a different turn. Do you want to maybe just give the listeners a a, a quick update on how your 
how your life changed through that period and what decisions you took? Yeah, sure, yeah. So um, after living in Paris for a long time, yeah, I moved home back to Sydney and the actual company I was working for, Carlson Wagonley, I moved home with them. They transferred me back, you know, got us set up here. I married a French guy, so he came back with me. And then so I worked for them in Australia for I think about four years on the Australian side. So I worked with the company for over 10 years in the end. And I guess I'd gotten to a point where I was just like, I actually found this is something really interesting that like I had all these skills and all this knowledge, but whenever I wanted to look for other jobs, it was like I couldn't get a job anywhere else except my specific industry. Like, you know, basically pigeonholed that this is what I know how to do and that was it. And I kind of felt like I'd gotten to almost like the quite a senior role in the company and I was just like I can just see myself in 10 years' time having always been in this world and always done the same thing. So I think it was just really a realisation I was looking for just to change something fresh and it felt like I guess to maintain a, you know, a high level of salary and to sort of be at the level that I wanted to be it felt like it was a real challenge just to move into another role. So I was kind of like at that juncture where I didn't really know what to do anymore. And at the time I'd kind of really gotten into mountain biking and I loved this new sport that I'd been doing and just the clothing and everything in mountain biking I felt was not up to scratch and that there was a lot of opportunity in there. So I read The 4-Hour Work Week, which is a, you know, a book which Definitely, I do not work four hours, but I was on a work trip and I was um, flying down to Melbourne and I grabbed it off the shelf to read on the plane. And yeah, I remember that that was like a that was a game changer for me. I basically I'd already been thinking of this idea of a mountain bike clothing company. I was already really like there's just such an opportunity here, and I think I can do this better than a lot of what people are doing. And that book kind of really, you know, tipped me over the edge, I would say. And I, uh, when I was on the plane, I, I came up with the company name, which is Darko. It sort of has an acronym for Downhill Aussie Riding Company. And I kind of written that, you know, on a little piece of paper in the airplane. And I came back and resigned from, from my job. And I think that they needed, you know, five months notice or something that was a bit like maybe it was two months in my contract, but they negotiated extra. And so I stayed on a little bit longer. But yeah, that was really the catalyst. And at the time we owned an apartment in Paris that we bought and lived there. So basically the idea was let's sell that. I won't work until, you know, I'll just start the company, invest all that money into the company. My husband is an electrician by trade, so he he kept working for us, which was lovely. And then, yeah, so that's pretty much how it started that I founded my own company and then started doing my own thing. So like so many founders, you went from a kind of corporate existence to um, stepping out into completely uncharted waters. And <laughs> I love the story of the four-hour work week, which I think is, um, has probably been an, uh, a catalyst for a lot of people, even though, as you as you mentioned, it, it probably has a fair bit of false advertising in it. In, in, uh, yeah, it's a great title. <laughs> <laughs> it takes more than four hours to read it as well. Yeah, that's true. I wonder how many founders, having been inspired by it, realise that uh, their work week might have a four in it, but it usually has a, a second-digit um, after yeah, that, that's absolutely <laughs> that's some other big number. So, 
And I'm sure you sharing that story at this moment will instantly kind of like, you know, prick the ears of a lot of founders and people who are thinking of doing something like that who would be listening right now. So, Mandy, let's jump across into into you as founder of Darko. You've got the idea, you've you've got the ambition, whatever else, but my guess is that probably not everything was smooth sailing. So, you know, obviously we're talking to you now as a as a successful CEO of the business that, that you founded, but Darko is now how many years? Ten years, ten and a half. Yeah, 2012. So yeah, actually it might be 13 now, but for product. So it took me, yeah, it took two years to launch, two and a half almost to launch the actual collection first product range so I probably very naively thought I would do that in six months it's my game plan that I would quit my job you know in six months I would launch launch the new range yeah it it took a lot longer than I thought but I guess that's you know good things take time and it was really a big steep learning curve I'd never been in tech you know I'd never been in making clothing in fashion didn't know how to do that so I had a big learning curve to go through I spent quite a bit of time going to China and to Hong Kong and different factories to source you know yeah the factories the materials learn how to you know make clothes and and do all of that so it definitely took longer and I think one of the other key things is, you know, I really launched with quite a, you know, a good range, a good size range, not just with one. I didn't start out, you know, I think a lot of people kind of start at company sometimes or in clothing anyway, and they might make a couple of T-shirts and they take an item off the shelf, an AS colour one, cut off the labels and put their own thing on it. So I think that was a fundamental that I never wanted to do, you know, and I, I don't think you can tell if you can be successful or not by doing that. So I really, you know, went to the core right from the beginning to develop the products exactly what I wanted. And the whole point of me starting was I wanted products that didn't exist yet. So, you know, the, yeah, the process to get that and make that a reality and test the products, um, it just took a lot longer, I guess, than I thought it would take. And I'm curious to hear about some of the challenges you may have had, like you were saying about going over to China and meeting manufacturers and all of those sorts of things. Just a little bit of, a, I guess, as someone who kind of has spent a fair bit of time doing business in China, it might be that not all of that went exactly to plan. Would that be a fair guess? Yeah, like my experience with China is is really quite positive. I really like working with the Chinese. I find them to be quite straight. I feel like you know what what you're going to get like they're, they're relatively straightforward and honest I would say you know in a lot of my experience so it's been really positive also I love Chinese food so I enjoy <laughs> coming to China and I'm very good at chopsticks so they're always so impressed with my chopstick skills so you know I make friends very easily when I'm in China but like I think the first time the first time I had to send you know like thirty, forty thousand dollars to China of, you know, I would to, to make an order. That was huge. I think that was probably the scariest thing for me is that you're, you know, like you've got to make this product and you just got to send this big chunk of money at the time, you know. Yeah, that was a lot for me. And I think that was probably one of my the scariest things is that it's offshore. What do you do if they just take that and never never make a product for you so I think there's this trust element that I found challenging at the beginning because I you know hadn't done it and I didn't know what to expect they didn't know what are they going to do you know are they going to now not make my product and 
take the deposits or, you know. So that was probably, I think, one of the scariest parts of setting up or having that relationship that's not a local one. But for me to find manufacturing in Australia, it's really, um, yeah, in the space that I'm in, you just don't have the the knowledge, um, you don't have access to the right fabrics to make that viable. Having then got past designing and having clothing manufactured, you then, I guess, were staring down a myriad of different other elements of creating a business and a lot of things that you probably never never had done before. Mm-hmm. So you want to share some of those stories with us? As most people that start their own business, there was a long period where it was really just me creating everything. So you become the everyone, I guess, in the business. You've got to be good at marketing. You've got to know how to do sales. You learn about operations and technical systems and how to create websites. Like I'm someone that I think when I started Darko, I did not have huge financial backing. I just had the money that, you know, we had from selling an apartment and, it was very much I learned to do a lot of things myself. So I think I came into the business like that and I still like to know how everything works and I think that that is something that is is kind of invaluable because you really understand what's going on. So I think that's one of the cool things almost that happens when you're a founder is that you do at one point generally unless you come in with a huge ton of money from somewhere but if if you don't then you generally have to be across things and learn things so I think that's probably the foundation is doing everything myself and then finally you know becoming in a position where I could bring on some team and start to build to build that out and I guess that's phase phase two. And what was the thing when you look back now at that sort of phase one to phase two space Mandy what what were some of the things that you found hardest in in making those decisions and I guess also probably some elements of letting go? Yeah, I remember um, when I was in the phase one and everything I was doing by myself and I remember not knowing like, who do I hire, what do I do, like what can I get someone else to do, if you know what I mean. So I think that first hiring decision, and I get it all the time, people asking me that question, is like what? who do you hire first? Like, where do you go first? So I think like I did a few trainings and and some different thing at the time and was in a few um, business groups and everything. And I think one of the things that was a good tip for me was like pretty much detail all the things that you're really good at, like what's your highest and best use and make sure you hold on to those ones as long as you can and all those things that maybe you're not so good at and all that you don't like as much then those are the things that you should hire for. So I think that was a really good tip for me and that's kind of what I did. So for me, I love product development, I love marketing. That's my strength. I'm not great at sales. I'm not great at like packing orders or warehouse or customer service. Like I can do all those things and I, I'm fine at sales because I believe genuinely in the product so I can go do that. But it's not really my strength or where you know so I guess that was one of the key things and so I really hired for things that were not my strength and even to today I'm very still quite heavily involved in the marketing and product side because I feel like that's where I can contribute the most to the organization so and Mandy when you're hiring someone in a space that's where you have relatively low personal expertise whatever that might be because obviously as you start to 
build the team around you, that's going to happen sometimes. How did you go about that? Because I know talking to a lot of founders, that's one of the things that they find most difficult. It's like I'm used to being the person who is able to say, yeah, I know about that, do it like this. But then whether it be you're hiring the finance person or the warehouse guy or whatever it might be, and you're actually hiring people who have significant skills that you don't have, how did you find that? Yeah, I think that that is definitely a challenge. I think a lot of the people I hired at the beginning, we all kind of learnt on the job together, which I think is really interesting. Like now we're getting people into, you know, when you're small and it's like I felt like it was, you know, half in my house or in a bit of a warehouse, like it was, it's it's hard also to hire people with experience or, you know, it, we kind of grew as a team of people that knew the brand and liked us and a lot of the people in those beginning times, like we really all learned the job together. So I feel like we, that beginning session was not getting people in that knew the role. It was working with like-minded people that had an affinity for the brand and that, you know, were really there about with the passion to help it grow and then, now at a slightly more mature stage that we've gotten people into the organisation who have this experience coming from doing a similar job elsewhere. But I'd say we went through a stage where it was more the team we were all learning together. Like if I give the example of Kizma who does product development with us, I put a job ad out. That was my first hire. It was at both at the same time, actually, product development and then someone to pack orders and do customer service. So I had two people pretty much start within a week of each other. But Kizma, she has great technical Photoshop skills and great skills but had never designed clothes quite similarly to me. But she's a really great mountain biker, really passionate about what I was doing already. So she learnt on the job the actual making product side. But I feel like... Sometimes, you know, skills you can learn, but passion or drive you innately have. So I actually believe that that was a really cool way that we evolved, that the people that we got on board were those that were passionate. And, you know, a lot of those people were actually, I think everyone from that first, like the first five people that came on board in the team are still here. So... And that's a that's a great story to reflect on. Listeners to the show would know that I'm a I'm a huge Simon Sinek fan, and um, you know one of his you know, most important works was the was the book Start with Why, and that kind of really reminds us as leaders that you know, we should always seek to engage people in an organisation around the why of what you do, and then worry about the how and the what later. And when when people are deeply engaged in the why and they believe in it, and, and it's kind of in their blood, just like you were describing. It's not necessarily that the rest is easy, but the rest can look after itself. And, you know, I hear so many times when particularly founders talk about where they have massive challenges with bringing people on. It's when they kind of put that to one side and go, I really want that chunk of technical skills, but they finish up with people working for a mountain bike clothing company that, that wouldn't know a bike from a horse. And I guess, you know, the story that you share is you kind of stayed true to kind of, you know, this is what this company is all about and, and the fact that you were able to kind of bring people on who really were, you know, passionate about the the sport and everything that around that, you know, it's interesting that you then kind of say, you know, it's not that it was easy but other things kind of were able to fall into place, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that we were then 
because we all believed in that and we all loved what we were doing, then we were able to learn the skills that we needed to do that job, you know, better. And obviously that's developed over time and we're a lot better at that now, making product than we were, you know, back then. So it's definitely been a development and I think in some ways, yeah, then it's almost like you're you're really learning. Sometimes people with a lot of skill, they also have their way of doing things and I think what we were able to do was develop our own way and not be influenced by maybe the way that an industry professional might have done things. So I think that was also also quite cool. Like, yeah, the other person I was talking about is Tom and he's like Australia's slope style athlete. He's one of the top, you know, riders in Australia. So he, you know, everyone that's in our team really has a passion for what we do and you really see that that is where I think longevity, that people will be with the brand longer, that people that understand it and will just be better capable of doing their job when they have that. So I think for people listening, it's potentially not the same in every industry. Like our industry is obviously very specific like you know if you yeah it it is clear either you are a mountain biker or you're not people can become a mountain biker they don't have to but yeah it is definitely a very it's it's a niche so it's it's specific I guess but regardless of the niche the thing that stands true is the sense of passion to what it is that it's all about you know And, and I think that's I think most businesses if they look for it, it's there. It just sometimes, it sometimes gets hidden behind some of the what and some of the how. So that's something that I think you know people are often challenged with. I want to jump to closer to present day because the business has obviously done very well, Mandy, and you've expanded and 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 gone you know outside of Australian shores and whatever. But we've also had COVID times and you know some challenging times in the world of business. So I'm curious to to ask about challenges you might have faced in more recent times in in the business if is there anything that you would share with the listeners hard yards in recent times yeah I think um in the mountain biking industry ironically COVID was probably one of the better things to happen to the industry from an industry perspective in like that the industry had exponential growth so there was this huge growth curve during COVID in mountain biking as a whole like I think if you look at say the skiing industry, like that tanked because no one could go to resorts. You know, if you were in ski clothing, like you you couldn't, there was no one buying ski clothing, right? But in mountain biking, there's this huge curve as in mountain bikes and, and everything. So we're actually going through more of a hard time now, interestingly enough, at the end of COVID. So there was this huge spike in sales and growth and now it's plateaued off because now people are going skiing again. So now they're going back to their old, some old sports and, and you know, being, they're going on planes again and they're, they're spending their money elsewhere rather than the mountain bike industry. So I think we've almost had a reverse in a way in the industry as a whole. So I think that's something right now that we are definitely navigating and we've had a significant growth. You know, we've, we've set up an office in Canada and a warehouse and staff there and the same in Europe. So, and now the industry is slowing. So, and I guess one thing right now is, yeah, managing our costs versus, you know, the the growth that we were maybe expecting or projecting based on what we'd seen and, and just bringing that all into line. So I think, you know, from managing the team, there's a little bit more, I would I don't know if you call it stress or or just we're a bit more conscious now. We have to be more careful. We have to be maybe a little bit more 
focus on the results and making sure, you know, we're able to to continue and sustain the growth, not at the level that we were, but just recalibrate our expectations of, of how things are going to move because there has been that shift. And so same thing like in our growth of our team, like we're just, okay, stop team growth for now. Like we just all need to, it's almost like the industry needs to regroup and catch up after this change. So I think this year will be challenging in that regard that everyone is overstocked because really the whole industry had bought too much stock last year and then when everything opened up, it all started to slow down a bit. So, yeah, that's pretty much something I think that just us and the team are really working through as is the whole industry. So that's probably, I I would say, yeah, a big change and then on the back of that, at the time during COVID, we had to also manage this crazy growth. So, you know, one thing that we did quite well during that time was to get stock. Our Chinese manufacturers were absolutely fabulous over that time. I forgot, heard so many people like saying to me, how do you how do you still have product or how do you, you know, and we were just remaking constantly and we were really yeah, just making product available and getting our stock replenished, whereas a lot of the other brands in the industry weren't able to do that. And I think they're maybe bigger companies, slower to move, slower to to implement changes. So I think one of the advantages that we had was probably being a little bit smaller, being dynamic, or maybe a lot smaller for some of them that are really big companies, but, you know, being smaller and being more dynamic and being able to be reactive and then have great partners that we work with that were really able to help us like even in times where it seemed like everyone was having this problem you know getting things manufactured where I'm not sure we we really didn't and we were able to get a lot of product over that time as well. It's so interesting reflecting on on some of the things you were saying about having a period of faster than expected growth because you didn't know that was going to happen and then having to make the decisions to enable the business to to ride that wave, but then effectively, you know, most leaders in business assume that whatever growth is coming is only going to lead to more growth in the next phase and the environment doesn't always throw that at us. And I guess there was probably some significant work in managing kind of the mood and culture in the, in the team when you're coming off this period of, wow, you know, everything's going so fantastic and then basically having to say, gosh, we're going to have to sort of pare back and sort of hiring people, we're we're stopping doing that and probably some spend decisions and whatever else. How was that in terms of managing sort of mood and culture in the team, Mandy? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's still, it's definitely a challenge and like I really value all of our team and the people in the team. So, you know, having to make hard decisions on on team and all that sort of thing is is always a challenge but I think like really we just try and all pitch in as much as possible and and get through get through every stage and I think the main thing for me is just being like you've just got to take it as it comes and you know like you said we've got to make we do have to make adjustments and just be be flexible and yeah be open to to sort of seeing what it is that we need to do to continue to sustain ourselves for the future. Yeah, very wise words. And I think something that I'd, I'd kind of say as an observer of, of 
businesses of all different shapes and sizes is that um, growth is never constant and rapid growth and the end of rapid growth are both significant challenges in themselves and transitioning between them, I think, is one of the most difficult things that we have to do, especially when you're managing mood and culture. I mean, you can make financial decisions and people decisions and whatever else, but you know, it's very easy, I think, for people within an organisation to kind of go, what's going wrong? And ultimately, as a, as a founder and CEO, you're always having to kind of like give people a sense of how we're dealing with the environment and, and having that sort of sense, as you've described, of you know, the, the focus on the long term of the organisation and the decisions we need to make in the short term to make sure that we're always going to be here in the long run, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think for me that's been, it's, it's been a really good learning curve in having a shift and then realising, yeah, it isn't always going to be that crazy growth like that. We were experiencing exceptional period and it's hard when you're in it at the time to understand what is driving it. It's easy with hindsight to know, but I guess my real key learning from that is to be prepared for change. And I think that's probably one of the key things as a leader and something that I'm learning is really to be prepared for change, not expecting things to be the way they are doesn't mean that's what they're going to be like in the future. And I think with the team, it's really like we have to use this as an opportunity. Like we lost two of our team members recently, which I'm not replacing because of cost restraints. So, but really that's an opportunity for other people to step up. It's an opportunity for us to think differently. And so I think we're just trying to use the change as the opportunities to refocus. And I think sometimes recenter on what is it that's really important to us? What are the key things that we need to do? And I think this year for us is like, I think at the time we were just trying to keep up, you know, we pretty much, all just you know it was just all stations go and I think this year now is around planning reprogramming saying okay you know what some things we can't do like we really want to do everything we want to jump on every opportunity and be a part of everything we can but we do need to make sure we have a focus and that we have a clear direction so I think that's really for me and and the team is refocusing this year and taking that opportunity to make sure we're doing exactly what we want to be doing as a company and to get us through those next phases. So, yeah, I think the opportunity right now is is really that focus that we can have that, you know, change brings. Yeah, I think it's, it, you know, it just makes so much sense and, and you know, I guess the, the secret to making sure that people come on the journey with you is communicating and I think that and that's um, that's the thing that, that so many elements of business always come back down to that, the ability to, to bring staff on the journey ultimately relies on our willingness to communicate to them, be open about the sorts of things that we're, um, we're dealing with, be open about the, the difficult decisions that we're having to make, you know, not replacing staff. People always expect, it, you know, someone leaves, they're going to be replaced. You might sort of say it's, it's not as hard as having to fire someone and it's not, but it still is managing expectation. And then when it's kind of like, okay, we're all going to have to step up, there's always going to be people who go, well, that means I have to work more. And yeah, there's an element of why, but that's also, it's, these are also the moments when I guess culture is tested, but also innovation, it comes to the forefront, right? Yeah. And I think for us, like we're also, you know, we've got a lot of, a lot of other ways we can grow as in adding product lines and, you know, we're at the moment really expanding overseas and setting our footprint in other areas. So make sure that we're focusing on those 
we had just the natural growth. So now we, what other things can we be doing to help fuel that growth and support that growing team, you know, that the team can continue to grow and, and do all those things. So I guess that's really our focus, I would say, right now is, yeah, what are the other areas that we can put our energy in? What new products can we have that can just help to, you know, to grow our range and, and to grow our reach? One of the characteristics of the Hard Yards and Leadership podcast is a concluding question that I that I ask most of my guests, and it's and it's kind of really simple. So I'm going to throw this at you now, and and basically imagine I give you a tin of paint and a, and a paintbrush, and you get to write a few words on the wall, kind of opposite where you where you sit and work, and so that whenever you look up, you see those words. What are the words you paint onto the wall? Well, I would paint um, no ordinary life. So basically that is our company tagline and I think that drives everything that we aspire to and it's not so much about not leading an ordinary life as in not being in a corporate office or whatever. It's more about that, you know, mountain biking, what we're doing means that your life is not ordinary. Like even on the weekend, some people are going having brunch but we're not, we're out doing something really cool, really fun. There's a community, there's travel, there's so much around it. So I would definitely put no ordinary life because I think that is what inspires and drives me every day and, and the team. So that's what I would put on the wall. Nice. Last of all, but probably not really last, but just at the end, if uh, people listening to this are like, well, so what is this Darko product? Where do- where can they check it out? They can, yeah, head to our website, darko.com. So it's D-H-A-R-C-O.com. And the H for the downhill. Downhill Aussie riding company, yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> sort of, that's the origins. A lot of people don't know it. It's not like it's a specific acronym, but it was just where how we came to, to the word, I guess, to do something that's a bit different than anything that existed really was the idea. So for our listeners, uh, Having heard the, heard the story, do go and check it out. It's uh, it's amazing stuff on there, and it's fantastic to kind of see you know this entire business built off an idea, and uh, now is it you know close to thirteen years of dedication and focus, and you know what a success story that you've been able to build, Mandy. So it's been fantastic having you on and hearing some of the stories of you corporate, you post corporate, and certainly the growth and evolution and success story that is Darko. So thank you so much for sharing. It's been fantastic. Great. Thank you so much, Wayne. It was nice to chat. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader.